Let Him Go Barefoot is a podcast that dives into all things parenting and education through the lens of mindful awareness. Conversations aim to bring forward patterns, beliefs, and attitudes that shape our expectations and ideas about what it means to raise healthy children. With the blend of science, ancient wisdom, and intuition, we will explore ways to support, nurture, and connect with our growing children while also nurturing and expanding ourselves. I am grateful you are here. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 12. I am excited to be recording again after a brief summer break to focus on some ideas that I had bouncing around in my head for quite some time. Uh, So first, I want to make a couple of announcements. Number one, I am offering very affordable Zoom gatherings on topics such as unschooling teens, unschooling through the ages, and getting started homeschooling. These gatherings are purposely kept small to provide opportunities for deeper discussions and to really get your questions answered. The goal is to support you and your kids no matter where they are on their learning journey. And second, uh, for those who are seeking more consistent gatherings and a place to show up to with people who are curious, who want to learn and grow, and who are especially interested in putting research and theories into practice, I have created a new community called the Barefoot Playground. I cannot tell you how much this space means to me. It seriously feels like the birth of a third child. All the years of study and reading that I have done have culminated into this moment, into this space. And I hope you will join me. I hope you'll invite your friends, your family members, so that we can continue to expand our understanding of child development and get underneath the real meaning of well-being. Okay, so on to my next guest. Cindy Gaddis and I met many years ago when we were attending the same co-op with our kids. She quickly became someone I admired and loved talking to about all things learning and education. Cindy is the author of the book, The Right Side of Normal, which is celebrating its 10th anniversary this year. In the words of Thomas Armstrong, author of The Power of Neurodiversity and In Their Own Way, Cindy Gaddis provides a cornucopia of ideas, resources, images, strategies, and experiences to help any parent with interestingly different kids to find the key to unlocking their innate love of learning. I hope parents and teachers will take this book to heart when working with children who learn off the beaten track. There was so much information to cover and we had so much to talk about that this is just part one. We are recording a part two, so stay tuned for that. So here's the first conversation I had with Cindy Gaddis. Hello, uh, my name is Cindy Gaddis, and I have been homeschooling my children since 1992. I have seven children, five by birth, two by adoption, six boys and one girl. They are all now adults. The youngest is age 21, and the oldest is age 35. And I, so therefore I've been homeschooling, unschooling for about 35 years. Uh, if you want to count, um, starting with my oldest as a, as a baby, which when you hear my story, I did really start when he was a baby. Um, even though I didn't know about unschooling until he was five, uh, since or officially not unschooling my children anymore. 
I have continued on. It was one of my dreams that I would be able to start a unschooling school, which many people think that you cannot do, but I started that in 2017 where I was bringing in other homeschooled children into my place five days a week. Um, they could come two, three, four, or five days a week when I started. I started with eight years old and up. I am now at middle school and high school only, uh, starting mainly with COVID, mainly because I was only, I was mostly getting middle school and high school. I only had like two or three that were elementary age before that. So I've been doing that coming on year six coming up. I've been enjoying that. Um, from the year 2000 to 2020, I extensively would go to homeschooling and unschooling conferences and speak. Uh, I had enjoyed that. I did that three to five times a year. Uh, now it seems conferences are not as, as popular. Uh, so I also wrote a book uh, in 2012. So this is my 10 year anniversary about what I discovered about my children um, and how they learned. And it's a book called The Right Side of Normal. I also have a website called The Right Side of Normal. Uh, and so that's where you can find me. As for my children, since they're grown, um, what I, so I, I obviously at my website and in my book, I talk extensively about my children. My oldest is who I called the, my artist son. My second, I called my writer daughter. And my third, I called my builder son. Those three um, are all living independently. They actually all bought their own homes in their 20s. Some like one was 21, one was 25, and one was 28. Uh, they bought their house and, they, and one of them owns outright. Uh, the other one could own it outright. Uh, they got it with their own credit, um, etc. Then my next two... I call uh, my fourth child, I called my forever son. Uh, and my fifth, I called my electronic son. They both live with autism more intensively in their life. And they each live with uh, one of their siblings. And then number six, I called my, oh, what did I call him? Um, my theater son. And number seven, I called my dynamo son. Uh, number six also um, has uh, disabilities and he lives with another one of his siblings. And then my youngest, he's just still um, trying to launch a little bit, uh, uh, living at home still. Uh, the, the other thing I wanted to share with people, so, you know, they still dabble in all the things that they were interested in. Uh, but what was really cool to discover about my children when they became adults um, and we can kind of talk about this as we talk as well, but I remember creating a talk for conferences because of what I discovered. I called, it was called, What is Freedom? And it's because we as adults are always told that we should live within our means, mm -hmm. right? But we struggle with keeping up with the Joneses idea and comparing ourselves. And when we earn more, we spend more. It's just kind of uh, the American way. What I discovered, which was so unexpected, is that my three children who are independent uh, living people, um, they live 
below their means. Mm. And it's, I, I really believe it's because public school teaches us to be so comparative and always competing with each other. And they were not part of that dynamic. And so to watch these kids who really kind of grew up, um, especially when they were older, we had plenty. And so you'd think that they'd want things, mm -hmm. but they really don't. And it's really interesting how they live below their means. And, I, and that's why I wanted to create this talk that was called, What is Freedom? Um, but anyway, that's a little bit about my children. Uh, I do have also two grandchildren. I just had a baby granddaughter born a month ago. So I've been enjoying that too. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> okay, I'm back. Your story is wonderful to hear. It's also, I'm grateful that I was able to experience your family and learn from you because, um, I was, I was just thinking as you were talking, trying to remember, I'm pretty sure we met at the co-op first. And then I saw you at the conference, the one of the first conferences that I went to in Charlotte. And, um, I remember when you were speaking about your children and all the things you had learned that it struck me very deeply because I've always been interested in how children learn and human development. And to see that you took what you were learning from your kids versus the other way around, right? Like you weren't just, it, it's like the, what we've seen so much in homeschool in the homeschool community is that we learn from our children. Well, I mean, anybody for that matter, but I feel like homeschool parents really embody that, that they're not only here to teach and lead their children, but they're also, able to learn from them. And you were able to write this amazing book, which I will go ahead. I want to, I want to read a little excerpt from your book at the very beginning. You have an acknowledgement section. And like you said, your book is called the right side of normal understanding and honoring the natural learning path for right brain children. And in your acknowledgements, you write, it's these heartfelt stories of creative, inquisitive, yet misunderstood children that motivated me to put a voice to this valid learning path. So can you walk through that a little bit more and explain what you meant by that? Yes, I will. Uh, there is absolutely a story to that. And that is, so I, I mentioned starting to homeschool in 1992. Uh, there was not an internet at that time. It was really hard to find other homeschooling people, let alone unschooling people. So we had to kind of to, to create our own thing. Uh, and really, I'm grateful for that at this point. Um, you know, we kind of had to create what unschooling was. Um, we had very few resources to go by. I had a great mentor um, that was very useful to me. But I think it was around 1998 or so, 1998, I started going onto the internet. And Start, it was so exciting to find other people who were homeschooling and unschooling and getting to hear stories because, you know, it really was a desert before then. And mm -hmm. I was starting to hear people describing their children. That sounded a lot like my children. But they, the parents were feeling frustrated. They were talking about learning disabilities. Uh, they were... Um, worried and it confused me i thought wow it sounds like their children are a lot like my children but that is not the experience i was having um mm. with how i was viewing my children i saw them as wow they were such amazing children and and all this stuff so it really triggered in me 
what was the difference in what was happening with these other families with children like mine and mine. And so that's when I began to research. So I had no labels before this. Now my oldest was I think 13 or so, 12, 13 was older. Um, and I had raised them with no labels. I didn't know anything about learning disabilities. <laughs> I didn't know anything about right brain, left brain, nothing. Learning styles, nothing. I had just observed my children and unschooled them and de-schooled. Um, so when I start looking into things and start, I basically started translating what my children had taught me about how they learned. And as I start researching, I started seeing that it matched with this thing that some people called right brain, left brain. Uh, my children were right brain learners. I'm very left brain, my husband's right brain, and all of my children are right brain. <laughs> Interesting, right? <laughs> so it's like, it was not fair. And that's why I really took an observation point of view, not only because John Holt, who was the founder of the word unschooling, um, was a big advocate of observation, but being a person that had some control slash perfectionism, coming into my life, I didn't want to put that on my kids. So what I did is I steered it towards discovering what they were showing me. That's where I put all that energy. Like I can control me watching them, you know, versus mm -hmm. controlling them. Um, right. So I felt like, and so as I discovered, so as I did that, it became a really important discovery for me that what, others were calling difficulties and disabilities when put into a different category, a different label, a different perspective, it changed everything, obviously, because that's not what I was experiencing with my children. They were flourishing mm -hmm. and all these other people seemed to say their children were not flourishing. So when I started wow. sharing with people what I was discovering, the difference was it was highly enlightening for them. It wasn't just, hey, that's some interesting information. It was life-changing information. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about how as parents, we do have our own perspective about what something should look like and maybe how someone should learn because it's what we know and we're intimately connected to. So it's almost like, and I can relate to being left brain. I have very strong left brain tendencies and very strong right brain tendencies, but I also appreciate that sense of order and there's a, you know, structure to things. And, um, but it, but it makes me think about like, if a parent is left-handed and their, their kid is right-handed and they're trying to make their kid be right-handed, I mean, left-handed. So it's sort of the same idea, would you say with with the right brain characteristics and the left brain, and maybe we should just get into it. Like, let's just dig into what you saw, how you organized information and what made, what made it possible for you to take what you were observing and put it in words to support and share with other families. So it, it took a, it took a while um, mm -hmm. because this was new vocabulary for me. Right. Um, but it was very intriguing to me. Uh, I, I want I want to also give just a, a, a quick backdrop of what I understand that 
I, I had something going for me that obviously other people don't always have. So we all have a background, right? We all have how we were raised, who we are as people. I was left kind of to myself to raise myself. Um, my parents didn't mm. parent very much. Um, and I had a personality that was super interested in learning. I was a huge seeker since a very young age. Um, I was always figuring out how to help myself learn. I loved school because, of course, that was an easy access to learning. But even at home, left to my own, I was always doing something. I was always creating projects. I was always pushing myself to learn something. So I come. the reason I bring that into play is when I had children, because of who I was, I, I just thought, Everyone was like that because, you know, you always think mm -hmm. people are like yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So when I had children, yep. my assumption was, of course, they would want to learn because that's how I was, you know, so it never occurred to me that they wouldn't engage. So I, do, I did have something going for me, which was this idea. First of all, again, I was successful in school. I loved learning so that I just expected the same thing. I didn't come in with anything other than that. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. So that did help me when I, like when I said, I understood that I had some control issues because what's funny is what people don't understand is when you are not parented, there are, you feel a loss of control just as much mm. as if you are heavily parented which is a loss of control. Both opposite ends of that is a loss of control. It just comes from two different places. So I came, obviously coming from that background, I could see I had some control, some needs to control, right? And some perfectionism going. So again, that's why I brought up the fact that that did set a stage for me as I was raising my children to take, because I love to learn, so it's like I created mm -hmm. this basically uh, uh, a scientific environment <laughs> in my home mm -hmm. to sit and learn from my children. Like, oh, fascinating. You know, let me see. Let me put that in their environment, mm -hmm. see what they do with it. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not that. Your house was a research Yes. <laughs> it, it really was. And yet, I mean, it wasn't as specific as that, but that's basically what it, what the what my perspective was. And the reason I bring that up is it was therefore an unusual situation that I placed myself in to not disturb the environment too much. Mm -hmm. I certainly had my stuff because I am left-brained and I did try my things. But the other element, of course, is that I had five children in the, in the period of time of under eight years. Yeah. <laughs> So I always say my fourth, the birth of my fourth child saved the education of my first mm. because I had my fourth child in September of the day of the year. My oldest turned five. My children never went to school. I homeschooled from the beginning. So I didn't have time to throw myself into his life because I had a, a newborn baby. And three others. Yeah, right. <laughs> so again, that kind of created a situation for me to kind of get to allow that natural, that's why I said the natural path to learning. 
because sometimes what's happened is some experts understand that the public school system and most institutionalized educational systems are heavily left brain. And so they often will create um, tricks or um, strategies to help a right brain person navigate the left brain world. When I wrote my book, it was very important to me that I did not want to share strategies and tricks in order to help them be more left brained. Mm. I wanted to reveal what the natural path to being right brained is if we would allow it so that everyone could discover it all ends up at the same place if we can de-school the scope and sequence of what is seen in school and understand that there could be a different scope and sequence that still puts you in the same endpoint, just a different order. Right. Right. Well, and as you, as you got to that point, that, that point in your explanation, if you'll allow me a minute, I'm going to read this part of your book. It's on page 65 and it was in, um, describing what, um, Stanley Greenspan wrote in his book, The Challenging Child. And Mm -hmm. it says the strengths of left brain children are valued in the early years. So they seem smarter earlier. The strengths of right brain children are valued in middle school to high school. So they appear to suddenly become smart later. These strengths of the left and right brain learners can be linked to doing better or worse with with certain subjects based on the time frame for learning those subjects. Currently, the scope, what's learned, and the sequence or the time frame used in school for developing different skills and subjects favor the left brain learner's natural time frame. The good news is there's also a right side of normal. And I love that part because it just it, it, it sums it up so much because we do all have the school lens, right? Most of us. Um, that's, you know, school is typical and it's what we are told is needed for kids. And, and, and as you were describing your experience of getting to the point to write your book and to become much more observant of your children, I think it speaks, I think a lot of parents and and educators can relate to the need to pull back and to just allow the environment to be and to let the kids interact with it as they, as they feel more natural um, and, and, and as it speaks to them, instead of, like you said, manipulating the environment or getting involved necessarily. So allow things to just happen. And then you can see sort of what works, what doesn't, what they gravitate towards, what they don't. And the school environment is in my mind, it might be, it might be normal, but it's not natural. And while some kids will thrive in it, it doesn't mean it's meant for everybody. So what would you say then um, would be like, I guess maybe do you think this would be a good time to just sort of break it down as far as what you've observed with the right dominance, left dominance and kind of how you got to that, that, that those, how, how you got to that lingo. Sure. I wanted, I, I did a lot of reading with a lot of different professionals um, and I wanted something that felt holistic, that wasn't um, trying to define too narrowly because 
everyone is so different, even who are right brain, left brain. And let's just do a, a real quick uh, discussion of what I mean by right brain, left brain, and whole brain. Um, obviously, we all have a whole brain. <laughs> we use our whole brain. Um, there's, um, and I say this because some people will just automatically say, I'm not even going to listen to her because she's using old jargon that has been discredited in the professional world. Um, but this credit comes only from the idea that some people have um, been too literal and thought people mean that you're only using certain parts of your brain. Mm -hmm. Because there is definitely evidence that shows that certain sides of the brain tends to um, favor certain skills and traits um, within different people. So the creative side tends to come from the right side of the brain and the logical sequential side tends to come from the left side of the brain. Now the brain very much in it, you know, works together in lots of ways. But for instance, I know at least, I don't know if it's in my book or if it was just in one of my posts on my website, um, when they have done brain scans of dyslexic people doing their reading it's all lighting up on the right side of the brain. Hmm. When, when you look at um, proficient, what they consider proficient readers, especially at the correct quote unquote time, it tends to light up the left side. And so that just right there is continued proof that the, that, that some people will favor um, processing information through one side of the brain or another. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's a dominance, it's a favoring, um, and it gets better integrated as, the, as you get older, but you still have a favored side, therefore you have certain skills and strategies that you favor. Just giving an example. In school, they heavily like to use memorization. And memorization, the strategy of memorization tends to use short-term memory. That's why we often talk about plug and chug, right? Mm -hmm. That we will cram for a test into our short-term memory, throw it onto a test, and then throw it out of our short-term memory. Some of it gets, if it was interesting enough or whatever, gets you know made its way over to the long-term memory. But a lot of it we just shove out, right? Because it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a tool uh, best used for short-term memory. Right brain people tend to favor learning by association, which uses the long-term memory. So they will do something like my oldest son, who learned all of his continents and all of his oceans because he liked animals. He wanted mm -hmm. to know where all the animals came from. He would look at atlases to show him where all the animals came from. He would draw as an artist these continents with the animals in the continents and he wanted to know where these continents were and so therefore and even on many countries he learned in different continents because he wanted to know about animals so that's that's how you learn by association and it kind of makes sense when you see how he learned that that it would end up in long-term memory more mm -hmm. than it would short-term memory he's not doing it because he needs to learn something quickly and pass something, he was intrigued by something and wanted to know how everything is associated. And most of us, when we can associate with something, we'll probably store it in long-term memory. Gotcha. Okay. 
Uh, and I'll often laugh and say most of the trivia people that you see, let's say, on Jeopardy, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're going to see are right brain people because you're thinking, and I'll look at my husband and say, why do you know that information? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where did you? I don't know. Something was interesting to him and he stored it in long-term memory. And so therefore he could pull it out. And he just had lots of bits of information that was interesting to him at one point yeah. <laughs> that got stored in long-term memory. Yeah. Um, so that is an example of when you favor one side or another, what tool you may end up using or favoring over something else based on your brain dominance preference. Well, and I can just automatically right now, I can think of so many instances in the classroom setting when I was working in schools where if you, if, if the way that you teach is such that the children are required to quickly memorize and try to save it for just a small amount of time and then spit it back out on a test. If, if you have a, some right brain children or kids who are right brain dominant, that would probably feel like torture to them. And then because they can't keep up or because they can't do it, then the teacher might immediately think, oh, they're a little bit slower or maybe they can't quite get this information and could easily peg them as somebody who maybe has a learning disability. Would you say that that's kind of a typical way that that might go down in a classroom? Yes. So let's talk about those labels of learning disabilities and why this all came to pass when I was hearing people talk about dyslexia, ADD, ADHD, um, dysgraphia, um, uh, and and such, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I feel that through my research behind every learning disability label, is a right brain dominant learner. Mm-hmm. And that's a red flag to me. That says to me, they are in an environment that says, why is this intelligent child not progressing? And instead of saying, is it our environment? Is it our scope and sequence? They are saying something must be wrong with the child. Right. So then they put these learning disability labels on them, which I just handily disagree with. Mm-hmm. Now, am I saying that there is no such thing as the traits of a dyslexic person or the traits of an ADHD person? Absolutely not. Um, those are typical right-brained um, uh, attributes that will come out in certain environments um, because they do think three-dimensionally, and that often is the uh, reason for a lot of their um, delays, quote-unquote, uh, and the reasons they need a different scope and sequence. Um, because they're highly visual learners mm-hmm. and they need an image-based uh, uh, system instead of a uh, language-based, uh, a word-based yeah. and language-based uh, uh, system. So anyway, I also always say, especially I, I hate that they're called learning disabilities. Yeah. To me, a disability should be disabling mm-hmm. and it, it's a difference. And, you know, so some people want to say a learning difference and that's exactly right. So why are we even still saying learning disability and why are we even separating them out? Um, Cause if we understood how they learn and when they learn, we probably get rid of a lot of those labels. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do any of the research, you'll see that. And it wouldn't be about the child. It'd be about the environment. So we would flip it around. It'd be about, about the environment. Yes. That's why I said there is a right side of normal. And I made a play on that word because it's like, if you've got, okay, so Linda Krieger Silverman 
has done extensive research. Now her thing was on gifted people. Okay. Okay. What's her but book? Her book is upside uh, down brilliance, but yes. I don't know if it's in print anymore. Okay. Yep. Um, but she, but she has a website and it's still pretty good. Um, she, she was in the gifted realm. Okay. okay. And she said she went to a conference and she had discovered all this stuff about these gifted kids. And some other expert was at the conference about ADHD kids. And another one was there about uh, auditory processing kids. And she said, as they started comparing notes about their individual case studies, she started realizing, and, and how she said it was something like, we, and I have this in my book somewhere, um, it, I came to realize we were all studying the same elephant, but from different angles. So this one was studying the trunk and this one was studying the ears and this one was studying the nose, but we didn't realize it was an elephant. Mm, yeah. And that was a big deal. Yeah. See, that's the thing. When you, if you go to an ADHD specialist, they may find ADHD when you have a right brain child, you know, and if you go to a dyslexic, you know, it, yeah, listen, not every, okay. Every dyslexic child is most likely right brain, but not every right brain child will be dyslexic. Right. Almost every child that's diagnosed with ADD or ADHD is most likely going to be a right brain child, but not every right brain child is going to be diagnosed with ADHD. Okay. So, but what she was discovering is they're so hyper um, focused on specializing that they're not seeing this whole child standing there and they stop, they realize she's, she started realizing, oh my goodness, are we missing we're, are we missing a big thing here, which is, are we, are we studying at this, these pieces and, and we've missed the whole? And that's why I wanted to say right brain, left brain. She says visual spatial learners and auditory sequential learners. That's her labels. Mm. The reason I didn't like visual spatial learner is because it's implying that you're both visual and spatial. So I'm looking at, when I go to conferences and talk about right brain dominant people, I use my first child and my third child because I say betwixt the two, they cover all the traits, but they hardly overlap mm. because my artist is highly visual and my builder son is highly spatial. Okay. And it's not that he's not visual also. It's not even that my artist isn't spatial because if you're an artist, you probably are, but they're, but they're, they're especially one's visual and especially one's spatial. Mm -hmm. Um, so, and they, they kind of have the different traits between them that covers all, all the things that, that I, I determine. And, and a lot of, um, a lot of those ideas came from Linda, uh, Krieger Silverman. Okay. She, she had a lot of great things. And so did, um, what is his name? Um, he wrote the right brain children in the left brain world. Oh, um, yeah. and even Thomas Armstrong brought some, some elements to it, but, uh, what I'm saying here is that I wanted to see the whole child. And sometimes when you're an expert at something, you want to specialize and maybe you over specialized and you're not seeing the whole. Right. And that's why I, I have still continued with right brain, left brain, because I feel like it, it describes a holistic person. Now, let me talk a little bit about whole brain, which kind of sounds funny because again, we do use our whole brain. <laughs> I'm going to give you an example with my daughter. So um, in my book, I talk about different attributes. So, you know, it's just not this easy, oh, over here, your right brain, your left brain. It's a continuum, right? Mm -hmm. It moves along the continuum. 
And I discovered that the male gene is in traits that typically are considered male are right brain traits. And traits are considered typically female are left brain traits. Think about us females who like to talk, right? Or like to organize. Not all of us, but it, I'm just saying that that's a mm. stereotypical female trait, right? A, a stereotypical male trait is things like they're big, big picture thinkers, right? Um, things like that. So and they're visual, and, visual and they're visual, and like um, builder. Exactly. Type. So mm-hmm. I do believe, therefore, that's true. So let's say, so my daughter is right brain dominant, but she's female. So she brings in female traits, like she likes to organize. Um, look at my son, who's very right brain dominant and a male. He does not like to organize. <laughs> He's not very good at it. Um, mm-hmm. But she likes to organize and she liked to write um, because she's a girl. But she's still very right brain dominant in a lot of processing that she does. So therefore, she comes across as whole brained. Because, and that's why she can be, for instance, a creative writer. She's not a nonfiction writer. I'm a nonfiction writer. That's left brain. Fiction writers tend to be possibly more whole brained because they can, she can see the story in her head. So I've always heard about that, that, you know, the story writes itself when it's a story. Mm-hmm. And I could never understand that because I don't have visuals in my mind. I cannot visualize a story and how what they'll do is as they're writing, right? The visual is revealing itself to her as she writes. So that's that right brain visual side that's writing the story for her. But then she has the left brain side that can organize it better than others because of her female side and that she's a word person as a female. So that's why she kind of ends up in the middle of the continuum, both left and rights are being equally utilized in the profession she enjoys because of being female and right brain dominant. Okay. Well, and as you're describing this, it's making me think about how we use words like introvert and extrovert to describe somebody's personality. And we now, well, not now, but we also have ambivert, which is the middle. So somebody who has both of those tendencies and characteristics, this kind of making me feel that like it's very similar because as you said, it's not like, you know, if you lined up a thousand people, you could really organize them by those very solid characteristics and they don't have any of the other ones. There's always going to be crossover, but it's just a matter of what is the preference and kind of maybe, would you say too, that maybe what's going on in the processing that we aren't even aware of? So like, if I take in information a certain way, what's happening in my brain, I can't necessarily tell you, but it's just doing something. And, and that dominance for, of what it's doing tends to determine whether or not I'm right brain dominant or left brain dominant. Right. Yeah. I mean, yes, you will be able to see, uh, especially when they're young, how, what they are drawn to and, um, and what they'll be able, what you'll be able to see. Um, I wanted to quick throw in, because this was I was going to with Linda Krieger Silverman, she was really big on creating a test, okay? It was mostly for giftedness, but it also ended up being for this right brain, left brain thing, okay? And she discovered that about 30% are strongly right brain if you're talking about looking at a classroom of kids. Oh, okay. So she's saying a random sample of kids. A random sample that she's taken and she's kind of done a little studies on because this is intriguing to her. 
30% were highly mm. right-brained and 30% were moderately so. Okay, so you got over, yeah. So if you're looking at 60% wow. are, are, are have some until right brain dominant uh, traits, then why are we calling them learning disabled? Yeah. Why are we why are we not discovering that there's another scope mm -hmm. and sequence that could be valued for a large percentage right. of children? Because <laughs> you know we're saying, oh my goodness, look at the huge you know numbers of ADHD disabled. Mm -hmm. No. Let's look at this huge number of different types of learners that we are not addressing in our school yeah. system. And that's, that's where I can get frustrated. And even people will say, why don't teachers know about this? Why don't schools mm -hmm. know about this? I don't know, because you know what? I'm mm -hmm. just a parent. <laughs> and I'm, I'm spreading this, this good news to homeschoolers to help them understand. But I've had better people than me, like a Thomas Armstrong, who wrote The Myth of ADD, mm -hmm. right? And in fact, I got to go to a conference when he was one of the panel members along with some other professionals. And I decided to ask the question. This is a big question, right? I said, so you've been talking about this, that these differences don't have to necessarily mean that there's a disability here. And you're, you know, a professional. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you've written books. You speak on the topic. Why haven't we changed as a culture in our schools to address what you've been revealing. And they all looked at each other and they went, we don't know. Yeah. Well, it's one thing to do the research and find the answers. It's a totally different ball game to actually, you know, put it to practice. Exactly. Um, so, but now Linda Krieger Silverman said this, um, and I agree. And I kind of um, went a little further than what she was talking about, which is, so there's, a very clear way of knowing if your child is right brain dominant. There's two big factors that make them different. One, they see in pictures. When you see in pictures, mm -hmm. you think everyone sees in pictures because you think that's just how humans are. But guess what? Yeah. I don't see in pictures. <laughs> um, I don't see pictures. I just know words come into my head. And so being visual and let's say when you read a book and you see a visual come into your head when you read a book, that means you're probably right that brain dominant. The other huge factor is, and she mentions this in her book, is what do they like to do? So I came up with nine categories and she had some of these same categories and I kind of expanded on them. Uh, I call creative outlets. Um, you got your traditional artist photographer. You got your traditional um, dance uh, music is right brain dominant. You've got theater showmanship, showmanship being something like a comic or a puppeteer. Um, our showman is what I call showman. Um, video games and, and electronics, uh, math and puzzles. And when I say math, I don't mean arithmetic, I mean math. There is a difference. Um, Can you elaborate on that? So arithmetic is one plus one equals two. <laughs> Mathematics is understanding the manipulation and uh, how uh, numbers have patterns. Mm -hmm. And there's patterns in how they integrate with each other. So it goes back to that relationship part. It's the relationship, yep. the spatial awareness. So my, my right brain builder was a big math person. He's, he went to college and had a math minor. 
and he's his whole most of it elementary was doing pattern blocks and um, pentominoes and tangrams. He found that fascinating, mm. and that's what got him excited about math. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really early math. Is that not one plus one equals two? Yeah. That's arithmetic. Right. Um, we all know a computer and a, and a calculator can do arithmetic, but a mathematician is only one. A, a computer can't usually do what a mathematician does. Yeah, which is you know it can to some level, but it's usually form, formulaic. Put the formulas in there, mm-hmm. right? But to know how everything relates and interrelates, that's math. Okay. Um, gardening and cooking um, is right brain. Um, uh, I've gotten listed on my. And then, website. did you say music? Would music and music uh-huh, and dance? And dance. Okay. I kind of put. There's always like I put two together all the okay. time. Um, because they kind of interrelate. Peter's video games, I said, and art photography, I said, puzzles and mazes, building and electronics, I said, math and numbers, music and dance, cooking and gardening, theater and showmanship, fashion and sewing. Those are the ones I've got. Okay. You you said these were right brain characteristics because... Because of their visual nature and how visual people are are focused on those so those are create because remember the right brain is creativity Mm, right and all of these are what i call creative outlets the core of what a right brain person finds joy from is creativity Ah. and sometimes you think you know we often again thought of traditional creativity are oh well my son is not an artist so he's not creative well that's just one of nine Mm -hmm. (laughs) wait or i had a friend who um, I helped un- help understand that for music, you think of playing an instrument, but her son didn't play an instrument, but he loved the music in the soundtracks of movies and was intrigued. In fact, I always found my kids, like I said, as a left brain person, I could sit there and go, wow, you guys find, find- I found some of what they're interested in. And was so boring to me as a left brain person. So when we'd watch a movie, they always stayed to watch the credits. <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to know who the artists were. Oh, interesting. They were listening to the music, you know, and I'm like, they wanted to know who these background people were. That's something. And I'm like, you know, done, let's go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like, all right, we got we got a schedule to keep. Let's let's move it on. Yeah, and these are like seven seven year old children wanting wait, wait, we're waiting for the credits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I just learned, you know, very quickly that when we watched the movie, we sat until the whole thing was done. How about that? And then I got to discover that they snuck in those little cute things, you know, in the middle of credits, right? Oh. When they bring out a visual. Yep. yep. And I'm like, who whoever knew? I never stayed and watched the credits. Right. My children definitely taught me that. It's like, wait a minute, there might be a piece at the end that tells you what's coming up next or the next movie. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm the same. Well, and as as you're reading out those descriptions of the of the creative outlets, I thought about like an architect. So would that be somebody who is definitely right brain dominant, but also have some pretty strong left brain characteristics exactly because, right because i think an architect have those very straight lines yeah. and very, you know and it, but it could be a builder because i remember i put on my website when i was doing my um when i was doing my blog time and my builder son didn't do traditional art he did what i called builder art mm. and it was lots of maze looking things okay almost video game looking screenshots almost that was his art. 
and I'm thinking, why am I, t who am I to say, because it wasn't a drawn lion, you know, that this is an art, right. you know, it's his spatial depiction of art. So I put a bunch of examples up of what his art builder art looked like. So if you could almost look at architecture, it's like builder art, right? Uh -huh. uh, my, my electronic son loves architecture and likes to build houses on the architecture programs and he has autism and that's his thing because he likes ceiling fans and so he likes to create his own houses and then put lots of ceiling fans in mm, it okay. uh, yep and um so i but i believe you're probably right i would think there'd be some left brain elements to that well and um, and i'm thinking about my kids well when you said we we're talking about your kids in your book when you described them each i was reading about your builder son and um as I was reading what his creative outlets were and what he preferred, I was like, that sounds so much like my son, you know, I was like, Oh my gosh, that's him to a T like the Legos building at four years old and train tracks at two and that sort of thing. But he also was very verbal. My son was mm. verbal. He started speaking really early. Um, okay. And so I was just curious about that. But the other part of it was that how, when you look at your kids and see how they approach things differently, so I'm just thinking broadly, like if a parent has several children and then they have an art project that they, you know, parents maybe led an art project, put some, put some um, pieces and all kinds of tactile things on a table, just like sit back and watch how your kids interact with it and right. notice how one might be very methodical and want to put things in order, maybe organize them by color, maybe, you know, put them in a row, whatever the case may be. Um, and my two, so when they both drew, uh, we had this thing we did at home one day and I will never forget it because I, it, it just stuck. So it was stuck so deeply. It hit me so deeply because I had an opinion about whose artwork I thought was whose, and it ended up being flipped. So my daughter's artwork was extremely organized. You could have folded it in half and it would have been the same on both sides. And my son's okay. was much more flowy, almost like abstract. And I thought that would have been her. And he is four years older than her too. So that's one of the reasons I thought maybe, well, the, the son, the boy, you know, he might've been more structured. And then, so as you're talking about the difference in that male and female, I'm wondering if because of her femaleness and her need for order, <laughs> that her, her drawing reflected that. I don't know. Right. It, yes. And it very could be. And you even talked about the verbal ability of your son. Mm -hmm. That is another attribute that has to be factored in, whether it's a highly verbal uh, child or a gifted child. Mm. That brings a whole other element in, or a child with autism. It's like they they bring different elements to the table. So, for instance, um, your son, and I find this with a lot of women. So, when I would be at conferences, and if I set up a table at their um, little selling thing, I'd have the list. And inevitably it was women that would come up to the list and say, oh, I don't know which side I'm really on. <laughs> but what was really interesting is I, I was taught to them. And, and this could even be true of something like your son who has a highly verbal ability young, but also might be right brain. And that is when you have both traits and you put them in school, and school values the left side, mm. then what is going to be more developed? Mm -hmm. They're going to possibly leave behind the right side of their creativity 
and adapt to the environment in which they're placed, right? And this can happen in homeschools as well, because if you come in with the mentality of school and you have one that kind of is in the middle, that whole brain kind of person with a little bit of traits on both sides, then you're going to potentially uh, be showing them that you value left brain traits over right brain traits. So they start developing those left brain traits more. But what happens, and this is what I want to help share with people and why I continue to say this, because you can say, okay, great. They got to adapt to the environment. Sure. But what I also, as I continue to talk to these women, for instance, is they didn't feel like they had any gifts Mm. anymore. That they had become such generalist left brain, because you've got to remember what I also was going to say that, a right brain person needs creative outlets mm. in their life. If they do not have it in their life, they are only half living. And sometimes what these women were telling me is, I'm only half living. Oh, Cindy. And I would then tell them, what did you do when you were a child? Yeah. You know, what did you like to do? Maybe you need to revisit that. Did you like to draw? Did you like music? Did you like to cook? Did you like to garden? You know, what is it that you liked? Maybe it's time to... Um, reinstate mm-hmm. <laughs> the creative side that you put on a shelf because society didn't yes, value it. Absolutely. Gosh. Well, and you, I mean, I, I feel like I'm a poster child for this exact experience because I loved art. I wanted to stay in art class all the time. And I remember feeling just completely, um, just very upset when it was time for us to finish class and and they were like okay we'll see you next week and I'm thinking I have to wait a whole week and then I'd go back to class and we weren't doing what we had been working on and it felt like why is this class so undervalued when I feel so alive here and so as you said I let that go and I had to let it go because it wasn't valued it was reading writing math writing papers taking tests you know doing projects all in that very left brain side of of the way school was organized and it goes back to what I've, when I've worked with families and talked to people and tutored kids and I've explained to the parents, you know, you've got that whole, it's that whole square, square peg, right. And a round hole situation. Mm-hmm. And that's the, what we're yes. dealing with yes. in the, in the school world. So I think it's super important to have this conversation because like you said, it's not just about people sending kids to school. It's also, what are you doing at home? How are you viewing learning? Are you putting certain types of activities ahead of others and valuing them more? And are you telling your kids that in some either directly or indirectly? Um, And that is, um, so would you suggest then maybe parents, well, first of all, I'm going to definitely tell them, I mean, buy your book, but also go to your website. And you said you have some resources that are listed where maybe they could either print things off or even use it like as a checklist possibly just to give them some ways of addressing things. Well, I have the, I have the chart with the with the characteristics of each uh, type of dominant okay. learner, um, and one of them one of them happens to be that left brain people are compliant and right brain people are resistant, which shouldn't even exist if not for school. Mm. And so, therefore, if you have a resistant learner, it's because they're trying to tell you something. Yes, it's not because they are dumb. It's not because they are learning disabled. It's not because they can't. It's because they're shouting as loud as they can. This doesn't work mm-hmm. for me. And if you, and, and, and you mentioned, okay, so I have a chart. It's my, the chart is at a, in, in one of my um, posts um, on my website. And it's also in my book where I 
kind of, and that's a whole nother thing, which we probably don't have time for, but I have listed a scope and sequence. See, I wrote this book for left brain parents. Mm-hmm. I want, I, I, I'm giving, because I know we left brain people, we like to, to, to understand, we need to understand why, you know, why does, you know, why does my child doodle? You know, now they finally come up with it. Well, I already knew why they doodled before they came out with why they, okay, they come up with the understanding that doodling is good. I can tell you why doodling is good for a right brain person. Doodling, they, some people will doodle in order to be able to pay attention to a left brain mm-hmm. task. In order to pay attention to a left brain task, they have to kind of open up their right side and they do that by doodling. Mm-hmm. Or they might do it by listening to music while they do their homework. Or they might be watching TV while they do their homework. And a parent will say, turn off that music. You can't, you know, you need to concentrate on your studies. Well, actually, they're trying to concentrate on their studies mm-hmm. <laughs> because they need to turn on the right side of their brain in order to concentrate on this left brain task. Wow. And so they actually can listen to music and do the work better when they're listening to music. Or, you know, just like when I would read aloud to my children, they didn't sit there staring you know, longingly into my face as I <laughs> read the book, they were drawing, yeah. coloring, doing Lego because they had to, in order to pay attention to my reading, they had to do something creative to open mm-hmm. up their brain. Mm-hmm. So in my book and in, on my website is a checklist or if you would, a, a chart that shows what is happening in, in schools typically, which tends to follow the left brain um, stages of learning and then what right brain people need instead of what is happening in the schools for left brain kids. But what's cool is when you look at the chart, everything gets covered by the time they're 13, mm-hmm. but it's in a different order. And so of course, when kids are young, especially around that seven, eight, nine people really start to panic. Oh yeah. My child's yeah. not reading. Well, for a right brain child, Reading doesn't come till eight to 10. It doesn't mean that doesn't come earlier because some of my kids did read earlier, but it's also just as prevalent for them to learn starting at eight to 10. Same with math facts, tends to be eight to 10. So the panic though begins around eight, nine years old. That's when they're starting to to go to the dyslexic specialist and the ADD specialist because in school, if you don't have X, Y, and Z, skill learned by third grade in third grade everything increases into more language-based learning so schools require almost need children to be able to be certain fluencies by that grade but homeschools Mm -hmm. you don't yeah you don't have to have that criteria that unbending criteria but of course we've all gone through the system often or at least we're certainly highly influenced by the system um, in what we value. Well, and we have the luxury of time. And then also the, um, Im- important thing to keep in mind is that it's, there's no learning emergency, right? You know, this idea that we have to do it by this certain date. No, we don't. And that was created in order to standardize. It's not a customized system. So what you've seen, what you've read, what you're sharing is that you are able to customize. So how would you, well, you know, you mentioned about the ages thing, and if it's all right with you, I'd like to um, talk about the four, I think it's in chapter four of your book. It's three distinct stages 
of learning because these pieces I think will be really valuable to anybody listening because it gives them, it gives them something to keep in the back of their mind when they're interacting with their kids, not only because they're trying to observe them and, and, and make sure that they're providing the environment that they need, but also just to, just to understand it more. And, you know, that left brain side talking right there was like, why, why, why? I need to understand why. (laughs) Well, actually, right brain people are typically why. Oh, okay. There you go. (laughs) We just just accept it as, oh, okay, that's what it is. Um, But we we like our checklists. And when we can't check our checklist off. I see. Okay. Then we're worried. And so I do give whys for what they're seeing. I don't just say, trust me, trust me. I, I, I help people understand what it is about right brain dominance that puts them on that path. Okay. And, and that's very, um, like you said, reassuring and it helps you say, Oh, now when I see it, uh, it makes sense. And that's why I always tell people to, I don't have to convince anyone of this. When I speak about what a right brain person looks like and how they learn, I'm seeing whole audiences heads are nodding. Mm, Right. mm -hmm. It's like, they're already seeing their child through my, my visual I'm creating for them. I don't have to convince them. They're saying, how do you know my child so perfectly when you've never met them mm-hmm. and you've just described them? And so now I'm going to listen to what you have to say because my goodness, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you could nail my child without knowing them, then you must have something that you can offer me right. to help me not feel so um, lost mm-hmm. um, in how I view them. So the three stages are this. So, five to seven years old, I called the foundation stage is because they're young. They're just young. They're just starting to really learn. Cause I, I feel like two to four years old is emotional, social time. Mm-hmm. They're learning their emotions and their high emotion time. Right. And we have to teach them, how, Oh, you're angry and you're sad and you're frustrated. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're really learning how to be social and emotional creatures. So five to seven, they're really starting to learn. So when you're so young, you are going to stay in your strengths, okay? That's why strengths-based education is so good because you're going to stay in your strengths because that's where your dominant side is, right? You're gonna, your dominant side wants to flourish. They're starting to learn. So that's when you're going to see your uh, right brain child, you know, do the creative outlets. You're going to see them dabbling into one of these nine areas, um, you're going to see them liking history because history is a visual story. Mm. Uh, I hated history as a left brain person. It made no sense to me, but I could memorize facts. Mm-hmm. Um, science, they love science um, because, again, that's the natural word, world. It's a visual experiments. That tends to be a discoverer type of thing, like a builder likes that kind of thing. You got geography. Again, it's visual. They can visualize um, countries and continents and what people look like and cultures and they are very fascinated by them and social studies because again that's your natural world your uh, community helpers and your maps and your atlases and things again highly visual makes sense image-based learning in the schools five to seven they're doing reading writing spelling and arithmetic what is all that that is all two-dimensional language-based learning. Mm. And so it makes sense that that's why I said it's left brain. Uh, And so for me, what was I doing at the age? I literally sometimes would sit there and say, I'm going to write every, I'm going to start counting numbers and write them out and see how high I can get. I would do that. Oh yeah. (laughs) I thought that was fun. Mm -hmm. How high? And then I'd get to like a thousand, I'd be done. You know, I was bored with it, but I would do 
things mm-hmm. like that. Um, then the next, so that's five to seven. That's when if I didn't do a lot with my homeschooled children, I fed them lots of opportunities and see what they were drawn to and what they were drawn to would tell me a lot of things, right? If they're sitting there writing things like my daughter, you know, she ends up right brain. She would copy books and all their writing. She would just copy books. So I saw that left brain side of her um, coming out. So then you got eight to 10 years old. That's what I call the transition stage. So it's transitioning. So if they got to really feed their strength area, which unfortunately right brain people don't. So that's why eight to 10, now they're starting to get all messed up because they've been pushed and pushed and pushed in the left brain and they, they don't have their strengths. They don't, they don't have a foundation in which to stand on to transition into the next stage. And that's why sometimes you'll have some of these things start coming out more at that stage. But anyway, if they're allowed to have some strengths and such, then what they're ready for is they're going to do the reading and arithmetic. That's when they're ready for that because now they, they're very solid on their three-dimensionality. They can now transition to two-dimensionality. So what they're going to do, though, is when they read, they, like, they have to translate every word and every number in math into a visual. Because remember, one plus one equals two actually indicates something real. One tiger plus one lion equals two mm-hmm. big cats, Yeah, right? So in actuality, one lion plus one zebra could actually still equal one mm-hmm. big cat. <laughs> and, and a right-brained person yeah. might tell you that. One plus one doesn't yeah. always Depends equal two. Depends on what you're adding. Because <laughs> in their visual yes. mind, right? And C-A-T is actually representing an actual thing, right? So that's why right brain people like to learn to read by reading comic books because comic books have already got the visual translated for them and so they can focus on the decoding. Or if you put um, closed captioning on your TV, they can focus, they're looking at the visual already done and they can focus on the decoding, things like that. Um, They tend to be sight words. They're gonna know how to read a noun more than the because the doesn't have a visual, but Mm. cat does. Or encyclopedia. You'll say, how can you read encyclopedia, but you can't read the? Because encyclopedia has a picture that they can have in their mind. Um, And then, of course, in school, they tend to then do the social studies and geography um, and such like that. So then, 11 to 13, so they're transitioning. But what happens also when you're talking about when I was doing my homeschooling, what I saw was my children would they were ready to explore other things and they would go and grab something that they were interested in, and then they'd bring it back to their, their foundation. So let's say, oh, they wanted to know something about, um, you know, dabble in something new, you know, Egypt, but then they're going to come back and they're going to draw it or they're going to build oh, okay. it, you know? Yeah. So they're going to take something that they're interested in and bring it back to their strength area, but they're now starting to dabble. I always called it a, a smorgasbord mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. just snack but then bring it back to my strength. 11 to 13 is the integration stage. Um, this is when everything else comes together. Uh, remembering around 12 is a huge brain shift from me-centered brain to I'm a little fish in a big world. Oh my gosh, what is happening? That's why middle school is such a mess because they really don't understand the stages of what's happening to young people, what they really need. But 
what's going on? This is when actually spelling and writing will come in at 11 to 13. That will freak people out because they think, oh my gosh, my child can't spell. Mm -hmm. Well, it's because it's like, and I've got a whole uh, uh, post about that on my website. It's like a double and triple translation because here it is. They, when they're going to write something, you have this, they have a picture in their head, right? Now they have to organize that picture. That's a left brain skill. <laughs> now they have to translate that into a word. That's mm -hmm. a left brain skill. And then they have to translate the word into spelling, which is a left brain skill. So we've got a triple translation or triple task orientation of left brain. And that's why they need to wait till their brain's really integrating so that they can really pull those skills together. But what I try to help people understand, for instance, about writing, writing, one way to show, writing is expressing yes. your ideas. One way to express your ideas is to take a pencil and a piece of paper and yeah. write something down. But there's lots of ways to express your ideas. You can do it through video. You can do it through an auditory storytelling. A lot of our right brain kids love to tell stories. They love to draw pictures and then tell you the, you know, the one picture yeah. is worth a thousand words and they will give mm -hmm. you the thousand words. That's all expressing ideas as well. Discussions. And then, so they're still writing at five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. It's just not necessarily always to a paper on yes. a pencil with words. Comic books is an easy first starting at eight to 10 for them to start writing because they're going to do the visual and just put some words in it. So it's, it's just a, it's this process. There's a reason for everything. Spelling is also a translation of word to parts. Right brain people are whole to part learners, not part to whole. That's why left brain, brain people can spell young because they mm -hmm. like part to whole. Oh, C-A-T yeah. spells cat. I don't, I can take some instructions and I don't have to look at the whole thing. I can start at number one, number two, and I trust that by step 50, it's going to be what it's supposed to be. But the right brain person wants to see the whole first. So you'll see somebody, and I would say, if you see your husband out there trying to put a trampoline together, does he have the instructions out or does yeah. he look at the box? And then yeah. he tries to put it together based on the right, picture on right. the box. Well, and, and I was just thinking about how both of my kids didn't learn to read very independently until about eight or nine. And um, I can't tell you with any confidence or certainty exactly how that all went down. It was more, they interacted with the spoken word. They interacted with the written word. I read to them. They read to me. It was just a constant interaction with write with, uh, with reading and stories. And then one day it's like, Hey mom. And they start reading something. <laughs> so I think that that whole, that whole word was probably a very, uh, that, that was definitely something that happened here. Yeah, and I always feel like you, you need both sight word and phonics. It's just right brain people like to do sight word first, then phonics, and left brain people like to do phonics, then sight word. Okay. That's it doesn't have to be either or. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I think it's supposed to be both. Right. Well, and I and I think that that's what's so important about this conversation is that you're opening up the options for people to remember to evaluate what their belief system is. What do they what are they bringing to their relationship with their kid as far as learning goes what's the learning story that they they hold on to maybe where where's the holes in their 
um, their learning experience or not necessarily the holes, but the, the injuries, if you will, like what did they not get in school that they wish they would have gotten? And right. are they somehow trying to fill that hole with their own kids or are they repeating patterns or whatever? Right. It really is comes down to de-schooling. Mm-hmm. I did heavy de-schooling, even though I was successful in school. Anytime I would cringe at my children doing something, I'd stop myself and say, where did that come from? Why did I, why did I have that cringe? Where did that idea come from? A lot of time it came from school and the value system I learned there. Mm-hmm. And then I'd ask, is it true? You know, like watching my daughter use her fingers to count. I just, I don't know why it freaked me out. And it just freaked me out that she was using her fingers at eight years old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet she's a kinesthetic learner, most likely, right? There was reasons for it. But in my mind, I'm thinking, why am I freaking out? Where did that come from? Where did I learn that counting with fingers is not acceptable? It's a bad thing, right. And is it true? Yeah. yeah. You know, and just keep questioning. And, and why, you know, if, if they're learning and they're happy, why are we going to put something like you can't use your fingers on them. I've seen grown people using their fingers mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't think, I don't think less of them. <laughs> I'll give you a funny story. Um, so when, when Sadie, my daughter was, um, diagnosed with diabetes and we were in the hospital, um, she was required now keep in mind, she's 11 and, um, this is all like a pretty traumatic experience for the family. And yeah. we're being told what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do, how to count this, how to count that, how to make a calculation, determine how much insulin she gets. Um, and the nurses before she can technically leave the hospital, um, had to be able, the nurses said she had to be able to explain to them how to calculate for her insulin. Well, she looks at me, Sadie looks at me and she's like, mom, I'm not, I'm not really sure, you know? And I was like, well, let's walk through it. We'll do it together. So then we did it. And then the nurses, um, were like, oh, okay, well, that's fine. Yes. And then, so they did it and then they grab a calculator and they check her work. So they're asking the 11 year old not to use a calculator and to be able to do it in her head and, or write it down on a piece of paper when they're over there going, let me grab my calculator out of my pocket. And I remember she even looked at me like, what is going on? (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) Yeah. So it was almost like, why would you see her using a calculator as cheating when in fact she's being resourceful and she's ensuring that she's doing it the right way, given that it's a brand new diagnosis. It's a brand new experience. Um, yeah. but, but it's just something that sticks out in my mind and makes me you know, realize how much that thought process is in there for so many of us. That like if you use a tool, then you're somehow cheating. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's not the case. So, well, like I said, I could go and on and on and on <laughs> because your book is so awesome. And um it is a 469-page wonderful book full of so much insight and information about how to pay attention, how to work with, how to create an environment that suits your children. And um, and I think, if anything, it, it really allows it, – it, it frees us, too, because – if, if we're able to understand and we're able to see things a little clearly, a little more clearly, then I think it allows us to take that deep breath and just go, okay, whew, it's all right. We're going to be okay. Right. Like what pieces of advice would you give to parents who may not be able to homeschool, but who have a right 
brain dominant kid and they're going to a left brain dominant school? Um, actually, my last chapter of my book <laughs> asked that question. It says, you know, what do we do then? You know, how do we make this, you know, happen at school? And, and I was able to talk with some people who were trying to do some things. Obviously, one, one answer is find another environment. You could either homeschool them. Montessori, to me, is the closest right brain environment um, that is out there uh, in charter schools and such like that. So that could be an option. Um, the other thing is push back against um, the fears that come at you from the school. So for reading, for instance, you know, if they're coming at you saying they're worried about something or, and you start learning about some of this stuff, you can say, you know, I know y'all are about phonics, but I think that he would do really well with sight words. And I'm not talking dulce words. Dulce words are what they t typically say is sight words, but I'm talking about um, visual, visual sight words, um, cat, dog, nouns, verbs, adjectives. Um, and say, you know, maybe he needs to start with that. Or um, I, I have different ideas in the back of the book. But um, even asking for alternative products, because, you know, right brain people are process people, not product people. Um, uh, some people have gone so far as to say, we're not doing the homework. Okay. You know, because, okay, they can do this much left brain stuff, but you're just overwhelming. They don't have time for the right brain thing. And I would say, you know, here they are in school. This is especially for older kids. They're doing all the left brain stuff the best they can. They come home and they still have to do left brain stuff. Where, where do they have room for their right brain stuff? Mm -hmm. You know, they need a space at home that they can come to and say, I can do my art. I can do my dance. I can do my photography. I can do my gardening, my cooking, you know, to say, I need to value that my child needs this outlet and I'm not going to keep having them do X, Y, Z. It is, it means being a louder voice. Mm -hmm. um, it means going against the grain of the system, but people did find ways to collaborate with school sometimes. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's, it's about being willing to ask the question, yeah. give them the book, give them the article, whatever, you know, that says, hey, I read this. What do you think about it? Because I think this is my child. Mm -hmm. What can we do in this system? You well, know? And like you said early on, the core of a right brain dominant person is the creative outlet. So it almost, it feels to me like if they're not able to have that creative outlet, that they really will suffer. Mm-hmm. Right. It's almost like you can, as, as you were saying, the injury that can happen, it can, it can create some mending. It can create some healing. It just gives, it gives them some, some healing space. Mm -hmm. We all need some healing space and the creative outlet is their healing space. Yeah. And if they're in a left brain dominant system or environment, majority of the day, it feels like they, they need to come up for air. Right. And that creative outlet would be able to allow them to do that. And you'd be surprised. I, I One quick story, and because it can happen in homeschooling as well. I had this person that came to me and they had this 13-year-old at home. And she said, well, I've ruined my child. I said, well, no, it's never too late, first of all, <laughs> to get new information and try new things. Now, she came from um, a background of um, uh, the Jewish faith that were very much about 
academics and, mm. and, and, and excelling. And they were pressing this child that she could see was very much right. Right. He wanted to be a magician. Mm. Well, that didn't go over well with their culture. <laughs> right. Being a magician. And, and she goes, you know, what are we going to, what am I going to do? You know, what do I do? And I said, and I, first I asked her, I said, if you keep pushing the other academics, what do you think, how do you, th what do you think he's going to be at 16 and 17? And she said, I think he's going to be highly depressed and I don't know, you know, where he will be emotionally. I said, okay, so let's just say you take a year off, let him be a magician, do that stuff. Don't put any pressure on him. You know, what could happen? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, he could be happy. It's like, okay. And what I was telling her, and I, I put my, I, I put it out there. I said, I'm telling you, if you give him space to heal and to and to be val validated in the creative outlet he needs, that he will come back to wanting to do the other things also. Now, that was a big, that was a big promise. <laughs> I wasn't sure how it was going to go, but she went ahead and went for it. And a couple of years later, she contacts me and said, I was right. She said she let him have it. He did, and he was so happy. But then he started finding his own way back because, you know, they, they are aware of the world, but then he did it his way with his control, but he also had healing through his creative outlet. Yeah. And people, what people don't understand, it's not always all or nothing. It's that this has to be the foundation, whatever their strength and dominance is. If you're left brain, you know, hallelujah, go ahead. It's not even that you're better. It's just that you fit the system better. Mm -hmm. It's that if you can give them their foundation and value it and they know it and can feel it, they can still, they will still do all the things. It's just that there will be balance. Yeah. And they'll do it in an order that makes sense for them. In an order that makes sense for them and in a right. way that makes sense for them. Yeah. But it's especially the order. The order is a big deal. Time frame. Sometimes people will be okay. Okay, I'm okay with doing a different product. But boy, that time frame freaks them out. That's why I wanted to list the time frame. Yeah. It's like, what do you mean I have to give them an extra, you know, two hours or an extra month or whatever the case may be? It's that we, we get really attached to the clock that tells us when something should be done or when we're going to learn something and we stop looking at the individual that we're trying to supposedly, you know, support and help them learn. Um, you know, it also makes me think about the fact that it helps us to reevaluate what we elevate as important and we um, admire even, you know, like yes. skills that we think are more valuable. So if you're not a nose in the book, you know, studying and being studious and doing all the things that are given to you in the school setting and not making good grades, then somehow you're not as valuable as a, as a student and, or a person. And, um, you know, these, but yet we love the creative side of people, right? I mean, we pay great money to go to concerts and watch ballets and movies. And yet, interestingly enough, when the children are younger and they show an affinity towards those things, we kind of steer them away from it. Well, and as Daniel Pink has said, today is the age of creative problem solving yeah. and actually in the workforce at the highest levels of workforce, the creativity is valued. It's just that we have not 
valued it and um, nurtured it in our schools. Our yes. schools do need a revamp yeah. for sure. Um, I'm not saying that schools shouldn't exist because I mm-hmm. think they, they do need to exist, but I do think that they need to be revamped and um, a lot more options. I'm glad Montessori started getting some traction in there. That will help. <clears throat> Sometimes though, the system can still take, take note. But the other thing I always say to people too, another word that people use is I wanted my kids to have a positive relationship with each type of subject, positive relationship with spelling, a positive relationship with reading, a positive relationship with math, a positive relationship with science. If you can keep that positive relationship. So my son, who was quite an atrocious speller, uh, and at 12 came to me and said, I'm not very good at spelling, am I? I said, no, would you like to change that? Because remember, that brain shift happened. So he became aware of that. But before that, mm-hmm. I could see he was atrocious. And I thought about a few things. I realized, you know, he was doing it. He was enjoying it. He didn't have a negative connotation to spelling. If he'd been in school, he'd been right. failing, 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 spelling, yes. right? Failing, 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 failing. So by the time middle school happened, when he was ready, could he have improved maybe or would he have blocked it because in his mind yeah. he was a bad speller and let me tell you the mm-hmm. mind is a powerful thing but instead since he didn't have a negative connotation he recognized it he wanted to over the next two years we worked on it he became an actual yeah. great speller he went from atrocious like literally i would have him spell a word and i thought i have no idea what you just spelled because yeah. <laughs> what i realized is he did not recognize the parts he did he because mm-hmm. remember they're hold apart so when he heard encyclopedia, he was trying to spell encyclopedia mm. as a whole word. He didn't know it had parts in encyclopedia, right. right? Right? Did Latin and Greek words with him? He said, "Well, why didn't you tell me that words were like Lego?" <laughs> I love that. Because <laughs> he was my Lego guy. He saw Legos had parts that made a hole. <laughs> he did not know words had parts. That's a great way to describe it, too. Right? Oh my gosh. And yeah. then once he got it, and we and there was other things, some auditory stuff he needed to work on, and but he was at a place he could. It is not too late at 11, 12, and 13 if you have the space in which to give them. Um, he was also a horrible writer, and then he ended up in college as a 4.0 student. So oh, it is not amazing. too late. You don't have to be writing at 8 to be a 4.0 student at 19. That's such a... Well, and that's such a great message to end on, to be honest with you, because I feel like that is an area that so many people struggle with when they do decide to homeschool is they wonder, are they going to be behind or what am I going to have to send them to high school because I can't teach the high school courses. And it brings up the reality that once the brain has matured, and the children have been able to set that foundation and they feel good about interacting with anything that they want to learn, then I feel like the sky is the limit. Right. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time and sharing your wonderful knowledge. I just feel like it, it just is so vast. And um, this book is amazing. And I want anybody reading or listening to, to find it's on your website. Is that correct? Or can people get it on Amazon still too? Or right. Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I've got uh, okay. for the ebook is only on my website. Okay. Do you have any parting words that you would like for people to, um, to think about? Positive relationships, uh, observation and D school. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Cindy Gaddis. As a reminder, this was part one. Part two should be available to listen to in a few weeks. So as always, stay curious, 
stay connected and stay aware. Until next time.